and you don't have to drive out in your horse-drawn buggy. We can, we can take our regular cars, right? And uh, praise the Lord for that. So uh, before we actually get into the stuff, we're doing something different this year than we did last year. Uh, this year we are actually offering this conference four credits as LFBI class, Living Faith Bible Institute class. And I know there are several of you here who are students in at least one of our classes. Raise your hand if you're a student here. So a good number, uh, both from this church and, and Midtown and other places. So uh, praise the Lord for that. So we are offering this four credit. If you have not already uh, registered for it, I think that you can do that. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy cheap. I forget what we charge, $35 a credit an hour or 40 or something like that. That's a tenth of the price of typical Bible college, uh, and the teaching is uh, so much better. So, uh, so this year, since we're doing that, let me just take two minutes and two seconds and talk about um, the requirements for those of you who are taking this as a student, um, there is an entire syllabus online. So if you uh, register, you'll get the syllabus for the class. One helpful thing in that syllabus is uh, actually kind of a glossary of terms that might help, we, help you with a few things. Um, also, it, it tells you exactly what our contract is with you in terms of teaching this class and getting you a grade. And so it'll talk, uh, you know, basically three things. Assimilation, number one, which means um, filling out your notebook and getting a notebook done. Uh, integration, number two, which we're doing by way of a book review. And the book that I chose was uh, Schofield's book on rightly dividing. And uh, because it's uh, short, it's an easy read, uh, it kind of got the whole ball rolling, as it were, a uh, hundred or so years ago. And also, it's available online as a PDF for free. And so we, that kind of goes along with this, and you have to do a book review, a book report of that book. And then third thing is, I will be putting together an exam that you can take online and a lot of those questions will be taken from Sunday morning and from the evening sessions so that you can just prove that you actually either were here or you uh, viewed it online uh, as, as we preserve things online. So, uh, so I just wanted to say that about that. So, so why don't you stand, grab your neighbor by the hand, let's have a word of prayer. If you got a cold, then just extend your elbow, just bump elbows. Or if you want to be like the, what are the, what are the, like, female Power Rangers? They bump hands. What are they called? Some of you know. I know you have kids that age. Okay, so you can, you can fist bump. You can bump elbows. You can hold hands. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, as we come before you at this time. God, we ask that, uh, that even of all the things that we see from the Word of God itself and from Scripture... Uh, God, grant us a movement of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, we pray you would move among us. God, I ask that you'd move among those who are assembled here. I pray you would move in the hearts of those who might view this, see this, take this online uh, in the future. God, we pray that you would help us to follow the momentum of the Holy Spirit so that we do not lose our way. And, and so, Lord, help us do that starting today, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So if you have, go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Psalm 138. And I'm sure that you remember the movie Wizard of Oz. And there's this amazing scene 
In the Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion, they all walk down this long corridor to the wizard's private chamber. And they were previously terrified by the wizard's face and his billows of smoke and explosions and venting of steam and everything going on. But now our awesome foursome, timid as they were, liquidated the Wicked Witch of the West. And so per the command of the Wiz, they're bringing her broomstick to the great and powerful Oz in the hope of getting a brain, a heart, some courage, and a trip back to Kansas. Because KU was playing in the tournament that year, and they wanted a trip back to Kansas. And so laying down the broomstick as proof that they had killed the Wicked Witch of the West, Dorothy says, Sir, we would like you to keep your promise to us. And while Oz is trying to be evasive and kind of comb him out of his, out of, comb them out of his wizardly hair, Dorothy's little dog Toto grabs a mouthful of the curtain and, and pulls it back. And that's when the wizard stutters haltingly those classic words. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But it was too late. Dorothy and her friends had discovered the great and powerful Oz was neither great nor powerful. He was just a man who was pushing buttons and pulling levers, and he was trying to create an air of authority. And that's exactly what, what, what our Totos, Pastor, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Mark, have started doing for us uh, already. That's what, that is what our Toto, Pastor, Pastor Brett Bartlett, did last year at the Certainty Conference. What, one year ago, they took the topic of Calvinism, they pulled back the curtain. They showed us, uh, you know, how many churches, I think, and pastors are risking their livelihoods and, and, their, and, and the lives of potential believers because they've bought into an illusion. And so they showed us last year how hyper-Calvinism, how salvation only by election idea presented as biblical, is really a scriptural illusion. It's based on human logic, not on divine revelation. So today, Dr. Bartlett and I come to, to, to this conference this year so that we can be your toto too. <laughs> and we're going to be your toto today. And we want to pull back the curtain right at the spot where we left off last year and continue uh, a critique of what is really unsound theology. Now... Uh, we all know, most all of us know, that, that uh, liberal theology, theology that denies the blood, the book, the blessed hope, uh, is unsound to begin with. But since we know that, that's kind of no threat to us. The thing that is the threat is the unsound theology that comes out of some evangelical circles. And uh, the most important topic, in my opinion, in the Laodicean age is really the idea of biblical authority. Because if you can put any shred of human logic or theological opinion above the Bible, then Satan can lock us into a Laodicean refrigerator. And in that Laodicean refrigerator, our pastors and our churches are forever lukewarm instead of sparking revival. Calvinism kills evangelism. 
and, and loss of a dispensational approach to the Bible kills prophecy. So, so in the idea of predestination, you lose the mission. You don't know what to do. If everything's predestined ahead of time, then, then really, you don't. what are you supposed to do for God? You just kind of sit back and wait for it to happen. In covenant theology, you don't know what time it is. If you're not a dispensationalist, you don't know what time it is. You don't know how short the time is that we have. And so, so maybe you came here last year. Maybe you've just arrived, arrived this year and you are in collusion with some of that. Maybe you're in collusion with the devil's conspiracy to keep Christianity cold. So if you're in collusion... I want to encourage you at this conference to turn around so that you can have a collision. You need to have a collision so you're not in collusion. Now, open, let me open a window on that word because that means this is not really a conference. This is a collision. We are having a collision. We are having a certainty collision. And, and First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia is the certainty collider. And you've heard of the Hadron Super Collider... That's the world's most powerful particle accelerator on the planet. And that's what this conference is for in a spiritual sense because this fellowship of churches that we're kind of calling Living Faith Fellowship, only we're not a particle accelerator, we're a person accelerator. And we're a person accelerator because our view of biblical authority and a faith-based view of the Bible in, in the Living Faith Fellowship is accelerating Christians to the speed of the Spirit. And you know, God is light, but the speed of the Spirit is faster than light because we're going to, to get you to do in just, just, just four days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, in about 16 hours of sermons and studies, what we're going to do is accelerate you to the speed of biblical thought. So, so I want to get you moving in the momentum of the mind of Christ so that sound doctrine can unrefrigerate you, can accelerate you and bring you up to the speed of the Spirit because we want every particle of faith active propelling us out of meat locker Christianity. Last year, they killed the Wicked Witch of the West. I mean, they killed it last year. And, and they brought his, his cold, dead, anti-evangelistic Calvinism and laid the fake nose and mustache at our feet. So this year, we pick up where they left off by fitting into the socket of the topic of Calvinism by addressing covenant and reformed theology. So this is not uh, just a dispensational conference, but in terms of our LFBI class, it's, it's kind of like contemporary, you know, in all, all Bible colleges will have a class on contemporary theology. So this is contemporary dispensationalism. How do we interact with the uh, other theologies and ologies that are out there against us? And what we're going to show you is you don't have to be scared. You do not have to be scared of the man behind the curtain anymore. Because the man behind the curtain does not have biblical authority. He can only create an, an aura of authority. Really just an aura of spirituality. Because he mixes in human logic 
which adulterates living faith and it abandons a faith-based view of the Bible. And, and, you know, we talked about early on maybe even doing some YouTube videos of some of those guys and kind of interacting with that. And and I did think about that and I thought, uh, you know, there's only so much you can take of The Wizard of Oz. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like li- listening to certain um, certain musicians or types of music on the radio. It's like it's like okay, that you know that one song is good, but now every other song they sing sounds just like it. And I don't know if I can take that too much. So so instead, let me start us off in Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Let's start off talking. I want to I want to talk to you concerning covenant theology. Covenant theology. So Psalm 138, verse one says. I will praise thee with my whole heart before the gods. That means even before the pastors, professors, and peers. I mean, I'll I'll even praise you in front of the, the pastors and the professors. I'll sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. So let me hit you with this definition for us to start off. Biblical authority means the authority for our living faith and our spiritual practice is derived from God's written word. Now, now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because authority is not mediated through human institutions. Some churches and some ologies teach you that it's mediated through the church, through a human institution. It's not mediated, really, through human systems of interpretation or understanding. The Bible takes precedence both over tradition and over reason in our lives. Corey Ten Boom concluded one time, as she was going through a difficult, dark time in her life, and and uh, the conclusion that she draw, uh, drew in, uh, I don't know, one of her books or one of her biographies was this. We can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. And I would say Psalm 138 verse 2 teaches the Bible takes precedence over both tradition and reason in regulating our lives. That is the point at which covenant theology, covenant and reform theology fails. They accept reason based on tradition, and particularly patristics. And patristics means the study of the early church fathers, because they think the early church fathers were Christians. No, you don't even understand church history. After the book of Acts, the church goes into a tunnel for 200 years. You don't see, there's almost nothing, no record of the church for 200 years in that tunnel. And when it comes out at the other end, it looks totally different than the way it went in. Because for 200 years, they killed their Christians. They killed their converts. And, and the ones that were left were compromisers or, you know, and not, not every single one. You can find exceptions, but for the most part, the early church fathers were not even believers in an evangelical sense, but they go back to that and they say, okay, we've got, we've got reason, we've got church tradition, and that governs their view of the Bible and their approach to Bible interpretation. So, so what you better recognize, and this is our first point for study, Any error 
that the devil wants to foist on hapless believers always comes in some sort of dismissal or distortion of Scripture. Dismiss it by adding or taking away, mostly taking away. Distort it by resting or twisting it, which is why all of us saints, if we don't want to be ain'ts, then 2 Timothy 2.15, we must study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's do that as we critique covenant theology versus biblical dispensationalism. So, you know, I've, we've got to at least take some time and do this. Let me say a word about covenant and reformed theology. Johann Koju was a Dutch theologian and a Hebrew scholar uh, from about 1630 to 1669. He lived longer than that, but starting in 1630, you know, he got a professorship and started teaching. And, and uh, so he had 40 years of uh, tenure, and he, he spiritualized the Old Testament. And if, if you are not going to approach the Bible in a way that allows it to interpret itself, then being a Dutch theologian and scholar... Uh, you're going to use your human logic and ingenuity to build a theology based on inferences. And you'll do that as you eat a lot of noodles and, and mashed potatoes and stuff. And, and you'll build a theology based on inferences. And in his case, starting with the Calvinistic concept of election and predestination, that led him to interpret his Bible within the framework of a covenant. Now, I would say probably his anti-Semitic views also led him to, to infer that the church had totally replaced Israel. So the idea of the covenant became the overall organizing principle for understanding the flow of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that's, that compendium of curated knowledge known as Wikipedia makes this clarifying statement about um, covenant theology, which is also called federalism, federal theology. It makes this statement. It says, these three covenants are called theological. So in covenant, you know, they call it, 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 uh, 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 they call it covenant theology, and yet they don't really use any biblical covenants. And instead of the covenants that we're going to talk about and I'm going to talk about and show you, they, they limit it initially to two and then they added a third. So they've got, so there's only three and they're not even biblical. So since they're not biblical, they call them theological, quote unquote. These three covenants are called theological because though not explicit, explicitly presented as such in the Bible, they are thought of as theologically implicit. Describing and summarizing the wealth of scriptural data. That sounds like a spiritual statement. Too bad it's not biblical, but it sounds very spiritual. Historical reform systems of thought treat covenant theology not merely as a point of doctrine or as a central dogma, but as the structure by which the biblical text organizes itself. Now, here's what I discovered last, last year. Uh, Pastor Brett Bartlett had the glasses and the fake nose and mustache. You remember that? 
And he brought that and we laid it at the feet of the great and powerful Oz to prove that the wicked witch of the West had been killed. And what I discovered was that in this certainty conference, in order to really do justice to a description of covenant theology, I had to go out and buy some uncertainty glasses. (laughs) Since this is a certainty conference, I had to buy uncertainty glasses to help me see the Bible uncertainly so that I could explain to you correctly covenant theology. So while I was here, we got in Saturday, and I bought myself some uncertainty glasses. So these uncertainty glasses do two things. Number one, they enable me to see the Bible uncertainly, and that helps me explain to you um, the ideas of covenant theology. And secondly, they provide me with a beard. And it's, and it's a red beard. Now, somebody like Pastor, Pastor Brett, he comes equipped with that already. But if you don't come already equipped with that, in, within the, the young and reformed movement, um, a beard automatically gives you authority. You, you're automatically a member of the academy. Uh, what some people call the scholars' union. You're all automatically a member of the academy if you have a beard. And so, so, so I... I discovered that in order to really view the Bible, I needed uncertainty glasses. So, so, um, so this, I don't remember if we put that quote from Wikipedia on your notes or not. Is that there in your notes? Okay. So notice, to say that they are not explicitly presented is an admission that they're not spoken about in the Bible. The covenant theologian would say that they're not, well, they're not directly spoken of is the adjective they would insert in there. But to say that they are theologically implicit is an admission that they are not biblically explicit. In other words, not like the the seven covenants that I'm going to list for you, which come from allowing the Bible to speak for itself. So in the final analysis, it means they have a theology based on inferences and the implicit things that they infer. In other words, they are not stated directly in any verse of Scripture, But they are inferred because of their Calvinistic presuppositions. So again, looking looking through my uncertainty glasses, the first covenant that they talk about was a covenant made with Adam, which they say was a covenant of works. Now, my uncertainty glasses help me, help me see and understand that that only makes sense if Adam was created in a lost condition. Otherwise, there's no reason to work. But if, you, but if he was created in a lost condition, and he's not, then he had to be obedient in order to be granted eternal life. When in actual fact, Adam was created innocent so that he could exercise free will and eat of the tree of life. So so you don't have to be obedient, you just have to believe enough to apply it to yourself and eat. That's all he had to do. But that's certainty. And I've got my uncertainty glasses on right now, so I need to stick with this. After the fall, the covenant of works was substituted for a covenant of grace. Now, R.C. Sproul and others today, and he was the one that almost put a YouTube video up of him today, but... He, he, he would say, without any scripture on which to base it, he infers the existence of a covenant in eternity past 
between the persons of the Trinity with regard to redemption. So they had a covenant of redemption that precedes both the covenant of works made with Adam before the fall and the covenant of grace after the fall. So you can only do that if you're a Calvinist, and it only really makes sense if you have your uncertainty glasses on, like I do. So so if you're a Calvinist, you can do that because you allow no option and no opportunity for free will. All right, well, enough of the uncertainty. We put a chart on your handout, which actually presents, and, uh, you know, and part of a dispensational theology is a Trinitarian system based on three things, creation, ruin, and redemption. Creation, ruin, redemption. There is a biblical basis for the dispensational structure of the Bible. So watch, watch. We've got that, we've got that chart there. Breaks the Bible down. Creation, Genesis 1-1. Ruin, verse 2. And the whole rest of the Bible, redemption and rest. So the methodical structure of Genesis 1 is really the key to God's dispensational design of the Bible. It's creation... Redemption in six days, reconstruction, uh, reconciliation, uh, repopulation, and then consummation or rest on the seventh day. And and that's what the Bible's all about. It It is, notice, it is history, it is poetry, and it is prophecy in the Old Testament. And it is history, epistle, and prophecy in the New Testament. So the answer to the three great questions of man, a history of where we came from, that's one thing, an account of spiritual warfare, that's a second thing, and a prophecy of future destiny, that's a third thing. Number one, where did I come from? Number two, why am I here? And number three, where am I going? Those are the three universal questions of men and women today. And and we have to find the correct answer in order to have meaning to our life. And only a dispensational approach to the scripture gives us all those answers. Okay, I can see you're not getting this because you didn't trust the coffee, so you didn't drink it. You thought it was the same swill that they always serve. And so now you're in here and, you know, lost an hour over the weekend and kind of zoning out. So, so let me be kind and rewind because I put another chart, a second chart on your handout for you because the whole Bible is about this. As you can see when you look at its parallel structure between Old and New Testament. So you've got creation and, and then ruin, which call for redemption, And in the Old Testament, historical, that's the earthly kingdom fails. Experiential, you move to a chosen nation. And then doctrinal section, the books of prophecy, where they're separated from the nations. On the New Testament side, you've got, got, you know, a foundation of the Gospels and historical. The spiritual kingdom fills. Where the earthly kingdom failed, the spiritual kingdom is supposed to fail. Where you had a chosen nation in the Old Testament, you've got a called out church in the New Testament. That's why the devil also attacks the church. 
That's why in so many instances, people who, you know, really, I think, are enamored with covenant reform theology are also uh, what, what they would call non, non-denominational. Uh, because, you know, I, I, and I was just reading in, uh, you know, this is a common malady, apparently. I was just reading someplace, and they were talking about how, well, you know, God gave this mission to the church, but parachurch organizations have come along to assist the church to pull this off. And it's not that I'm per se against parachurch organizations, um, except where they exist as a replacement for what the church should be doing. And churches use parachurch organizations. Okay, there are some things that we have to do it that way. Non-governmental organizations, NGOs, some places we have to work through those. Can't work through a church, that's fine. But, but the idea in Christianity is, well, you know, the church is there, but the only, church, the only reason the church is there is so people can come to it on Sunday and sit and be bored and be felt guilty if they don't give their money and, and let, you know, let the other people in these other organizations actually do the mission, do the work. So whereas Israel was separated from the nations, the church is separated from the world. Whereas Israel is getting made ready for the king, the church is being made ready for their king at the rapture. Now, here's, here's why that dispensational layout is the death. It is the, it is the stake in the heart of covenant and reform theology because Calvinism has to eliminate ruin. You have to eliminate ruin because God could never have allowed for the free choice of anyone to precipitate ruin. There cannot be ruin as the precursor to redemption. All there can be is a fatalistic fiat decree of redemption. There can't be dispensations. There can only be a covenant of redemption and then a covenant of of creation and works and and then a covenant of grace after that. So there can only be those three. There can be no free will for Adam about which ruin could have created any choice. Now that is reasonable if you accept the fatalistic presuppositions of Calvinism. Then you surmise that God started with redemption to govern everything else like a tractor beam. And there never could be a question of crisis and fall to call for redemption after the fact... Because God doesn't allow free will like that. So here's our second point for study. Covenant and Reformed theology assumes a covenant of redemption, infers a covenant of works with Adam before the fall that promises eternal life in exchange for obedience, and then accepts a covenant of grace providing salvation for fallen humanity. Actually, I should probably rephrase that because... Um, now, a covenant of grace is actually only for the elect out of fallen humanity. So the last one might be correct, but not the way they define it. And they make it swallow up all of the true covenants that exist after the fall. And that way, that way they can say the promises made to Israel don't really apply to Israel. Oh, they might have applied to Israel, but only spiritually, not literally. Literally, they apply to spiritual Israel. 
and the, and the church is spiritual Israel. And so you can see how a, a person can twist the Bible and then, and then stand on his head and look at what he created and say, that makes sense. Israel was an elect nation. That means if you were born an Israelite, God elected you. Now here's, uh, I, I need to put my certainty glasses on because here's what they say. Circumcision was the boundary marker of those who were elect. Therefore, what they say, baptism is the boundary marker of those who are God's people today. And so that justifies infant baptism. And infant baptism can be justified because there's no free will in the matter of salvation anyway. <coughs> so it is, it's, it's convoluted, but it's logical given their false assumptions. And if you take the Bible and you turn it upside down, it looks okay as long as you stand on your head. And, and so what happens? Well, what had happened was they are guilty of projection. Projection is that psychological device where humans attribute to others what is negatively true of themselves. It is blame shifting. So Reformed theologians accuse dispensationalists of believing the Old Testament was a system of work salvation when actually they believe in a system of works sealed by infant baptism and anchored by the ceremonies and the sacraments of their particular liturgical system, whether Presbyterian, Lutheran, Evangelical, or Reformed. Okay, I can see I need to open a window on this word. Uh, so let me, uh, is there, do you have a clock in here? Is there a clock like on the, there's not one on the back wall, is there? Oh, I've got one on, on the pulpit up here. Oh, I do have one. Okay, good, good, good. Now, is, it, it, are, is that an hour off? Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> we would have really been messed up. <clears throat> okay, so, uh, so, so here, here, uh, here's what I can see. Go ahead and stand up and stretch. Don't say anything, just stretch. Uh, so if you get to talking and don't listen to me, I'll never let you do this again. But I can see that you need to, st you need to get the blood flowing again while I tell you this story. Don't say anything. Just, just listen to this story for a second. A man went duck hunting one time. I don't know if it was the vice president and his friend or what, but went duck hunting. And uh, went duck hunting actually with his boss. And, and the man was born again, but his boss was an unbeliever. And he'd witnessed his boss so many times and to no avail. And so they went duck hunting together. And the boss said, you know, I don't understand you. You're always talking about how the devil is against you, what the devil did to you. And he said, you know what? I never have any problems with your so-called devil. And I'm not even a Christian. And the believing employee thought for a minute. And then he said, okay, what if, what if the next flock of ducks that flies over... You and I both fire, and we both shoot a duck. Each one of us separately shoot a duck, and one of the ducks is dead, and, the, and one of the ducks is just wounded. Which one would you go for first? And the man's boss said, well, I'd go for the wounded one first. And the man said, that's right. The reason the devil never bothers you is because you're a dead duck. <laughs> okay, you can go ahead and be seated. You can go ahead and be seated because covenant and reformed theology is a dead duck. That is why the devil attacks 
dispensationalism. Uh, because he does not want the common man or woman with a common Bible to be put in touch with the scriptures in such a way that they can figure out Bible principles for themselves simply by rightly dividing the word of truth where, where the word of God will start doing the work for them. The word of God will do the work. We've gotten away from that, even in our ilk of, of Baptist Christianity, but the Word of God will do the work for you. you, but you've got to get into the Word of God and let those Bible principles start working. You've got to have enough faith to apply those principles so they work. And, and so a lot of people today, the Bible isn't working for them, and they blame the Bible. No, it is, it is, it is you. So let's, let's talk about the difference between covenants and dispensations. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, covenants are not unrelated to dispensations because in many cases, a covenant gives the content to one or more dispensations in terms of the human responsibilities. So, for example, the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah gives the content to the dispensation of human government. The Abrahamic covenant gives the content to the dispensation of promise. The Mosaic covenant is simply administered during the dispensation of law. So let me hit you with this, this def definition. A biblical covenant is a divine promise that forms the ground of God's future dealing with mankind. In Ephesians chapter 2, did I, did I say turn to Ephesians 2? Okay, Ephesians 2 verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Therefore, having no hope and without God in the world, the covenants of promise on the human plane, cutting a covenant between men was a commitment to faithfulness, it involved a loyalty unto death. It wasn't just a contract. It involved relationship on the divine plane. Since God cannot die, then a covenant between God and man stipulates that relationship basically for, for eternity unless it's replaced by something else. So man does, never does man bring a proposal and say, God, will you do this for me? God is always the initiator of the covenant. So a biblical covenant contains the promises for an interpersonal relationship because it is by one, it is for one, and it is with someone. So the idea of a covenant is because of our inability to secure our own blessing, our gracious God commits himself to providing what we need. The promise of the Abrahamic covenant provides a kingdom of people in the land from Abraham's seed. The Davidic covenant provides that seed sitting on a throne. So we have a seed, we have a land, we have a kingdom, we have a ruler. They are all provided by covenantal promise. Those were all everlasting and unconditional. The Mosaic covenant was conditional and provided a temporary righteousness through the temple sacrifices, until the Lamb of God should come. But what if Israel rejected her Messiah? 
then everything was lost, right? All the promises God made were null and void, right? No, because there is a new covenant. We as Gentiles get new covenant blessings right now in order to make the Jews jealous. But it is still an irrevocable covenant with the houses of Israel and Judah. So now this is my listing of covenants. And you'll notice in parentheses, next to that it says YMMV, which means your mileage may vary. Your mileage may vary. You may not get exactly the same mileage I get. Uh, I think it's a cool thing that really, you know, we talked about the topic for this conference, but for the most part, none of us have colluded. We've not really colluded. This, this isn't Roswell, and there's no conspiracy going on here, and, and we've not really colluded, and we didn't compare notes, and um, I didn't know what, you know, Pastor Trotter was going to preach last night, and and, uh, you know, didn't, didn't look in advance over what Dr. Bartlett's going to say later. And, and we didn't quite do it that way, which is a good thing, uh, because uh, uh, that forces you to think and allows you to see some of the differences and think critically. And, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's a good learning, uh, teaching learning uh, uh, process, uh, because uh, none of the original... Um, uh, Founders of dispensationalism in America um, really all agreed with each other on every single thing. And there were differences um, uh, in the way they presented things and even in the way they looked at some of these covenants. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Um, so I, I won't say that I, what I've done is totally without reference to other authors, because I believe that what we should do, what I try to do, I think the, the whole goal of us having a Living Faith Bible Institute is so that we can give you something by which you can stand on our shoulders and see out further. So the legacy I would like to leave for the next generation is that they take um, um, some of the things that we were able to see together and have that preserved in such a way that when you get up and teach at some point that you can stand on my shoulders, you can look out a little further. You may be able to express things a little clearer. You can um, give a new slant on it that, that make people understand it in their time and their age and their generation. So listing the covenants is kind of like dividing the dispensations. And in that sense, I will say there's some biblical latitude in, in how different men of God come up with their final lists. So, uh, so embrace the differences, if, if there are, are any. I don't, and I don't know if anybody else has listed covenants besides me. I don't know. All of us are talking about dispensations. And I, and I think probably we'll all kind of come up with the same thing. But in the case that we don't, that's good for teaching and learning. And that's, that's why, um, uh, okay, okay, wait. That is why you have four Gospels in your Bible. You have four Gospels in your Bible. And that is why you can look at it and say, well, why did Luke word this particular event and incident differently than Matthew did? 
It makes you think. It makes you search things out. You don't view it as an error in the Bible. What you do is you give God the benefit of the doubt, and you try and figure out, well, why did, did Matthew say it like that? And look, now everybody knows that John was off his medications. I mean, you can read the book of Revelation. No, John was off his meds. So, okay, let's set, set John aside and just consider Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, okay, Luke and Matthew, same event and worded a little bit differently. And how come they do that? Okay, so it's for the same reason that you've got four Gospels, and they do not all say exactly the same thing. It enhances the teaching and learning process. It forces you to search. It makes you have to think uh, uh, critically and be a good Berean and evaluate what anyone tells you against the word of God. And, and secondly, you'll have to think for yourself in evaluating biblical evidence and, and come up with a conclusion based on a matter of conscience for you. There are a lot of things in the Bible. You know, the Bible doesn't necessarily just stop at one point and list all seven dispensations for us. And what that tells me is there are certain things in your Christian life that are a matter of conscience for you. And so you, you come to your conclusion, and as long as it's not heresy, then, then you, there's some things you need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about. So the criteria that I have used with regard to the covenants is that it is stipulated in Scripture itself that this was a covenant. So once I took my uncertainty glasses off, I began to see there's not just three, and three that are not mentioned any place, by the way, but there are actually several here that are mentioned and stipulated. And I'll tell you up front that Schofield and his reference Bible combines one that I separate and then lists a couple of others. Uh, Schaefer, actually, um, Lewis Berry Schaefer uh, divided the New Covenant into two sections, into two covenants. Uh, and he had, you know, he felt like he had biblical uh, reasons uh, uh, for, for doing that in his estimation. And uh, uh, However, what I've tried to do is just take, you know, some of them say, well, here's where the qualities of a covenant exist, so let's call that a covenant, but I'm... I'm uh, reluctant to do that, given uh, the criticisms that I would make of Reformed and Covenant theology. So, uh, so for example, between uh, Adam and God, Schofield has an Adamic covenant, and my thing is, while God did give Adam a commission to fulfill, I don't see that being directly called a covenant. Um, plus, the way I list them comes up with seven, so it must be right. Just kidding. No, I'm not. So first, number one, number one, what we will call the Noahic covenant. Let the whole church say Noah. Noah. Genesis chapter 9, look at verse 9. And I behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Verse 16, verse 16, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I rem may remember thee everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Be flipping to chapter 15 of Genesis. So the first in my series of seven and the last in my series of seven are both explicitly stated to be everlasting covenants. 
And after Noah came two covenants with, with Abraham. So number two, Abrahamic. Let the whole church say Abraham. Abraham. Uh, chapter, did I say turn chapter 15? Okay, chapter 15, look at verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now I'll be turning to chapter 17 of Genesis. So, so first, a covenant with Noah. Second, you know, God had already talked to, to, to Abram about his seed in Genesis 12, but now he expands that talk about his seed into a covenant that also covers the land. Now here's a third one that I list, number three, covenant of circumcision. Let the whole church say, ouch! God appeared to Abraham again when he was 99 years old and had 99 problems and changed his name to Abraham. And here in chat, did I say turn chapter 17? Okay, chapter 17, verse 10. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Verse 14. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Now turn to Galatians chapter 2. In Acts chapter 7, this is called the covenant of circumcision. Now, why do I separate this out as two covenants? When Schofield and Schaefer both keep them as one, even though Schaefer later on separates out the new covenant into two. Well, the reason is simple. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional and it was spiritual, my opinion, from what I see in the scripture, Genesis 15 says, his seed will be as the stars. That's the spiritual seed of the kingdom of God. That's those of us who have become sons of God, who replaced the sons of God, who fell and followed Satan. We will get a glorified body like Jesus, and in that sense, replacement theology is true. We take their place. But Genesis 22 says Abraham's seed will also be like the sand. That's earthly. That's physical seed of the physical kingdom of heaven. They were therefore given a physical token of circumcision. And Paul makes a big hairy deal about the, the difference between these two seeds and these two covenants, both in the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Watch, did I say turn to Galatians 2? Galatians 2, verse 7. But contrarywise, when they, when the Jerusalem Jews saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now, read the word of in the sense of for. It was not a gospel about circumcision, it was how we get the gospel to the circumcision and how we get it to the uncircumcised. Now turn to Romans chapter 4. Peter was getting the gospel to Abraham's physical seed who had the covenant of circumcision. Paul was getting the gospel to Abraham's spiritual seed who were made children of Abraham when they came to Christ. 
And that this was the case is acknowledged by the pillars of the mother church at Jerusalem in their conference with Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. You say, well, Alan, I don't know about all that. Well, don't believe me, just watch. Did I say turn to Romans 4? Romans 4, verse 9. Cometh this blessedness, the gospel of justification by faith alone without works. Cometh it then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Now turn, be turning to Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> and I hate to get so technical this early in the morning, but it is in the Bible. So when you're teaching this class, you can teach as God leads you because I'm not dogmatic about the differences between dispensationalists because if you break fellowship with somebody over issues like this, you are too hard-headed. And the reason you're too hard-headed is because you're hard-hearted, so stop it. Never create division because you think you know something that somebody else doesn't. They know something you don't, so you're even. So stop it. Fourth, number four, the Mosaic Covenant. Let the whole church say Moses. Uh, Exodus 19, look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Can you imagine when the children of Israel first heard those words? As God, the God of all heaven and earth, is saying this to them. So now let me just give you a sidebar. Covenant theologians cannot even find a place in their scheme for this covenant. It's so prominent, and they can't find a place for it. They still call this one part of the covenant of grace, in spite of the curses pronounced for not keeping the law. Now remember, all they have is three covenants based on human logic and the presupposition of fatalism. And since their scheme is based on fatalism and not on faith, they ignore the biblical data giving, giving, uh, that we're giving to you right now. And so all they see is an assumed covenant of redemption between the Trinity and eternity past, an inferred covenant of works with Adam before he fell, and then a covenant of grace applicable only to the elect who are predestinated to be a part of it. The law was a conditional covenant. It was temporary. It is now called the Old Covenant. But oh, it was so glorious. It was such a glorious covenant. Israel was encamped at Mount Sinai for 11 months, 19 days, and 57 chapters. They circled Mount Sinai for 57 chapters. It's where they invented the old folk song, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. And this covenant was glorious because it encompassed three things. It was a threefold system of, of law given in commandments 
the moral law, judgments, the civil law, and ordinances, the ceremonial law. So letter A, the, the moral law, Ten Commandments. Letter B, the civil law, social judgments. Letter C, the ceremonial law, religious ordinances. And now be turning to Deuteronomy 29. But you know, those were really the good old days. Those were the good old days when you knew whether you could go to movies or not. And you knew how long your skirt had to be. And, and you knew whenever you needed a haircut. I mean, it was the good old days. They even helped you picked out, pick out glasses. Could you, you couldn't wear those wire rim things. It had to be horn rim glasses or it wasn't spiritual. And it thinned out your wardrobe because you couldn't wear flared leg pants and bell-bottom jeans. And, and it told you what radio stations you were limited to. Don't you miss the good old days. Such a glorious covenant. Now, the fifth covenant we call Palestinian. Did I say turn to Deuteronomy 29? Okay, look at verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So this one is separate and additional to the covenant of law, the Mosaic covenant. Why? Well, look at chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 1. Go from 29.1 to 31. 30, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. Meaning, this covenant was necessary to amplify and confirm the promise of the land made to Abraham, because someday they weren't going to be in it. Because someday they were going to mess up. Because someday they wouldn't fulfill the terms of the covenant with Moses, and it was conditional and therefore, the unconditional condition was, if you mess up, you get kicked out of the land. So it clarified that if the nation did not keep the law, they got scattered outside the land, and yet the land was still going to belong to them, even when they were not in it. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Here, here's the dealio. In order to have a kingdom, you need not only a land, you've got to have subjects. But you can have a land and subjects and not have a kingdom unless you have a king. So you've got to have land, subjects, and a king. So six, six, number six, the Davidic covenant. Let the whole church say David. Second Samuel 23, look at verse 3. Then the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning. That ruler will be as the light of the morning when, it, when the sun riseth, even, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springeth out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Although my house be not so with God, David confesses, yet... God hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Now turn to Luke chapter 1. Be turning to Luke chapter 1. This covenant with David concerns a royal seed, a house, a throne, and a kingdom. David says, even though this covenant will not be fulfilled with my seed through Solomon. It will be fulfilled with my seed through Nathan. 
Because Messiah's mother Mary is going to come out of that. So my house that I established does not live up to the ruler that God requires. But the man that God provides through me will. And because he's the Savior, this is also an everlasting covenant of salvation. Watch Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God, and this is, this is huge. This is huge. This is huge. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Number seven, the new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. In the Mosaic covenant of law, that process got really old. Got so old, they started calling it old. This is an old covenant. Uh, it was so old and so failed that God pressed reset and replaced it with something new. Because Christ came and fulfilled the old. Therefore, he was free to re God was free to replace it with something new. Christ came. He canceled the old covenant by fulfilling it. He made a new one, sealing it with his own blood. And this new covenant between the Messiah and his people, Israel and Judah was prophesied by Jeremiah. Did I say turn to Jeremiah 31? Yeah. Okay, verse, verse 31. 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my law in their inward parts. I mean, that's got to be as exciting. Good words as what they originally heard under Moses. God has a plan for us. He's given us a covenant. We're separated from the nations. We're going to do this and that. Oh, wait, we failed. We broke it. I mean, we broke it. God divorced us. That's how bad it was. But, but listen, this will be the, after those days, say, verse 33, after those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts. Then it'll be no problem to keep. I'll write it in their hearts. And, and most of your problem is a heart problem. I'll, I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And watch, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Covenant and Reformed theology teaches that this has been taken away from the natural seed of Abraham, literal Israel, and it's all been given to the church, spiritual Israel. That is called replacement theology because it says the church completely replaces Israel in God's plan. But if that were true, if that's true, then that means this dispensation is the final one in the plan of God, leaving no place for a future millennial kingdom. 
So many, many covenant reform theologians don't leave any place for a future millennial kingdom. And yet, if this covenant was really made with Israel and the Jews, how did we get in on it? Oh, you're asking good questions this morning, despite the fact you had no coffee. So look at chapter 10, verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation, I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Okay, go to chapter 11. Turn over chapter 11, verse 11. From 10, 10 19 to eleven eleven. I say then, have they, Israel, stumbled that they should fall? And then Paul uses two words that he, you know, anytime he uses these two words, he's saying, I can't believe you're even thinking like that. You shouldn't even think that way. Much less write books about it and, 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 and become a theologian that espouses it. I can't, God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 15, look at verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? The casting away of them being the, recon being the reconciling of nature, as it were. The, the world is going to be restored. The regeneration of physical things. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead for us? N not, just, not just restoration of, na of nature, but rapture. Rapture of the church. Chapter 11, verse 25. Look at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, which in the Laodicean age, anytime you read that, as Paul is saying, you know, I don't want you to be, you know, sometimes I would misread it on purpose this way. But God would not have you ignorant, brethren. You ignorant, brethren, God doesn't even want you. But what really it means is God doesn't want you to be ignorant. And that typically in Laodicean age, in our meat locker, refrigerated Christianity, uh, the things we're not supposed to be ignorant of, are the, the, it's the stuff that we totally don't know anything about. Don't be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. This blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, thou shalt come out of Sion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I mean, it's very clear. Not just, not just calling them Israel, which, which some people with their uncertainty uh, viewpoint would say, well, that means the church, redeemed, spiritual Israel. No, I'm talking about Jacob. And Jacob was their name when they were crooked. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins as concerning the gospel their enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election their beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, 
yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So now you know. Now you know. God has always been gracious. Always been gracious. But this is the dispensation of grace. God is dispensing eternal life and the new covenant promises to Gentiles so that his people, the Jews, will get jealous and return to him. Now that won't happen until after the rapture and during the tribulation and at the end of the tribulation and Christ comes, but it will happen. It will happen then. And you can be petty and you can complain about God doing it that way. But Paul points out that these judgments are part of the unsearchable wisdom and knowledge of God. And it is not possible for you to teach God anything. Uh, Besides that, this manifold wisdom of manifold grace is how God ends up saving the world of both Jew and Gentile when both had failed to seek and find salvation. So now in this dispensation, God bestows all the merits of the precious blood of Christ upon uncovenanted, undeserving Gentiles by grace. And I, you know, I mentioned to you that, num- number one, we haven't all colluded. All, all of the teachers, all the people who are teaching, we agreed to teach this. We didn't all sit down and say, okay, how are you going to teach it? And how should I teach it? Uh, Which I think is good. But also, uh, typically in my teaching, I don't always give the textbook definition. I'll just have to be honest with you. Because I don't always like the people who wrote the textbooks. And And so what I will give, this is my sidewalk definition of grace. And a sidewalk definition means this is how we would define it if we were standing on the street corner. And I were talking to you about it. Let me hit you with a sidewalk definition. Grace is the finished work of Christ operating on your behalf as you activate it by faith. So those are the seven covenants I would list beginning and ending with everlasting covenants of salvation. But your mileage may vary. Uh, In comparing covenants and dispensations, let me go on to say that a covenant... The time it's in effect may coincide with a dispensation, like the Mosaic Covenant coincides with a dispensation of law. Other times it may be trans-dispensational. It may cross dispensations like the Noahic Covenant. Uh, Other times it may be worked out in several dispensations and then climax in one of them. Just like the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic Covenants promising a seed, a land, and a ruler uh, all culminate in the new covenant uh, during the millennium when that remnant of, of Jews come and trust Christ at the end of the tribulation. So the content of all Israel's covenants of promise are fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So covenants are divine promises made with humans. Sometimes those promises were conditional, So let me clarify, what is the difference between a covenant and a dispensation? Number one, covenants deal with people on a collective or national level, and almost all of them without reference to how an individual gets eternal life from God. And number two, dispensations 
are exactly what the word says. It is the ways God is dispensing. Now, it's also translated an economy. The, the Greek word is economia. So it's an economy. And an economy is a way the government dispenses the commodities necessary to life. So dispensations are the way God is dispensing eternal life in any given period of time since the fall of Adam. Except for two of them, I'd say covenants don't, have to, don't directly have to do with eternal salvation, but they do have to do with, a, with divine promises being fulfilled. Noahic covenant promises fulfill the physical salvation of the human race from destruction. New covenant promises fulfill spiritual salvation in the blood of God's Son. So, so real quickly, and then we'll wrap up and finish. Let's uh, define dispensationalism. Covenant and Reformed theology is a theology, but dispensationalism is not really theology as much as it is a way of viewing the Bible. What happened in Calvinism and Covenant Reformed theology to get it so twisted? We're asking good questions this morning. Let me start with a preliminary definition, and then over the next couple of days we'll build from there. Dispensationalism is in a way of approaching the Bible that allows for the Bible to interpret itself. So basically, it's an outlook on the Bible as a special revelation from God, so you will always result in becoming a dispensationalist if you simply allow the Bible to open and interpret itself. Because there are three ruling lines of special revelation. Number one, first ruling line is that the most accurate understanding of the Bible only comes as you allow it to shed light on itself. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians 2 real quick, the best system of hermeneutics, the best system of interpretation, or how to study the Bible, is the one that opens up to most Scripture and allows the Holy Spirit to be the interpreter of Scripture. Now, that is not what is taught in Bible college. And what we were taught in Bible college is exactly what Pastor Bartell laid out Sunday morning. It was grammatical, historical method. Now, I call that the adverb method of hermeneutics. The adverb method because as time goes on, they stick in more adverbs. And so now it's not just grammatical, historical, but it's also socio-rhetorical method of interpretation. And at the, just boil it down to the bottom line. The bottom line is, the, what they say is, the highest level of understanding is knowing what the original hearers understood. And that's as high as you can get. And that would be true if you box God out. If you box God out of his own book, then you have to approach it skeptically and not as a unit containing the mind of God for man today. You've got to approach it like any other secular piece of literature. And so you've got to know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic grammar and etymology and lexicology, lexicography and all those uh, things that the academy, the scholars society uh, is, is uh, uh, schooled in. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13 says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Well, how does the Holy Ghost teach? By comparing spiritual things with spiritual Turn to Isaiah chapter 28. If you're a dispensationalist and you have something as simple as a Cruden's concordance, because Cruden's concordance is more of a phrase concordance, 
then you can look up not only the word day, you can look up the word third day, you can look up the word that day, you can look up the word latter days, you can look up the phrase in, in those days. And those words don't carry special information by themselves, but they do serve as links to texts in different parts of your Bible. And because they link texts from different parts of your Bible, you're able to interpret the Bible the way it says to interpret itself. Paul calls it comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Here in Isaiah 28, beginning verse 9, Isaiah says, Whom shall, who, Who's God going to teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Here's who. Them who are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Well, why? Why are all covenant and reformed theologians, even the ones who have beards, why are they all immature about the way they approach the Bible? Because the, one, the ones who are weaned from milk and ready for meat, verse 10 says, here's what they realize. Precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. And what that means is here a little, there a little, and you got to put it together. The words are the key to the Bible because God delivers his truth in word packages. And he takes his truth and he divides it up and he hides it in different parts of the Bible so that it will weed out those who, who are disingenuous, deceitful, and not serious. But wait, there's more. When you interpret the Bible the way it says to, uh, it enlightens your eyes. It gives you sustenance. Uh, here's our third point for study. The primary cohesion of your Bible lies in the fact it's the mind of God for man today and has an overall eternal purpose. Since, since the Bible has only one divine author, you have to interpret it as having uniform intentions. Not divided up by genre and rhetorical aspects. You have to assume it has unified intentions because there's one divine mind behind it. So what's says in one spot can always be related to what is said someplace else. And if not, then you're a cult leader and you started your own religion. Hello, somebody. So here's the rub. In, in Bible college, I did not learn a biblical method. I did not learn a method of interpreting the Bible that is actually found in the Bible and founded on the Bible itself. Because dispensationalism is rooted in the assumption of biblical authority, then dispensationalism is a faith-based view of the Bible. And let me frame the second ruling line of special revelation this way, number two. In the final analysis, all scriptures related to the eternal purpose of God. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Why does God do what he does? Uh, why does he desire to set up a kingdom? Why did he give us special revelation? Why does that revelation culminate in the fellowship of the mystery of the gospel of grace? Why does he want us to complete the commission of making disciples by going and winning and baptizing and, and, and making them members of a church body and then teaching and sending them out to do the same thing? Why? Well, you're asking good questions this morning. We're almost done because here's why. Did I say turn to Ephesians 3? Okay, verse 10. To the intent... This is why, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose 
which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 21, verse 21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end, amen. I'd say that's an eternal purpose. So here's God's eternal purpose is to do three things. Letter A, glorify God. Letter B, by his son Jesus Christ. Letter C, through his son's body, the church. Because once you understand that, then you see that all scripture is related to the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But within that person work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God sets forth distinctions and distinctives. And these distinctions and distinctives concern a particular time and role for Israel as the people of God in the kingdom of heaven. And a particular role and time for the church as the sons of God and the body of Christ in the kingdom of God. So let me be kind and rewind. This is our fourth point for study. All scriptures related to the person and work of Christ. In setting forth distinctions and distinctives relating to the particular role in time for Israel and for the church. One role for Israel with rules and goals related to the kingdom of heaven. One role for the church with rules and goals related to the kingdom of God. And there's still a unique future for Israel related to their rules, roles, and goals. So two ruling lines of special revelation... And mainly all saying the Bible is its own key to interpreting itself. So let me finish the definition we started just a minute ago. We talked about dispensationalism. Dispensations are periods in which God is dispensing eternal life according to different divine goals, human roles, and biblical rules. Which brings us to our final ruling guideline, and then we'll raise up out of here. Third ruling guide, ruling line of special revelation. The illuminating teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to students in the past can, can be preserved for those of succeeding generations. That is the value of this conference. That's why we're having a certainty conference. That's the value of a Schofield Reference Bible, regardless whether or not you cross every T and dot every I the same. We owe a debt to those lovers of the word of God, particularly from the Philadelphian age, true Philadelphian age Bible scholars who left us things in writings and recordings. And that gets me into where I want to end and how I want to segue to what Dr. Bartlett will be talking about next because... I have attempted in this first session to link us and plug us into the socket of last year's conference, which deals with contemporary theologies. Dr. Bartlett is able to link us and plug us into the past as our defender of the faith. I, I mean, I, have, I don't even know all what he's going to say. Just by virtue of him being here and willing to take this time with us, you need to listen carefully in the next session. Forget about me in the first sessions over the, these three days. Listen carefully, Dr. Bartlett, because, because he, sta he stands before us as the defender of that faith that, that we're talking about here. And he's also going to warn us about going one dispensation too far.
So go ahead and stand and grab your neighbor by the hand. And then I think we've got a short break, 15-minute break, 9 or uh, 10, 10.30 to, what, what time is it? The clock's wrong. Uh, 10.30? 10, 10.30 now. 10.30 now. 10.30 to 10.45, and then we'll start back, back in here. You know, in the book Hidden in Plain Sight, Mark Buchanan tells a story about an 8-year-old girl named, named Brenna. And she's kind of autistic, and her mother walks in the living room, and their living room window was covered with a scroll. Somehow, Brenna had found a, uh, not an erasable marker, but, you know, one of the, one of the uh, permanent markers, and using, using that, she had scribbled across the picture window, top to bottom, side to side. And at first, it just seemed like one more mess for Mama to have to try and clean up. Uh, and then she got to looking at what had been written. Love, joy, peace, patience, kind niece, that's how Brenna spelled it, good niece, faithful niece, gentle niece, check this, self-control. <laughs> and her mother stopped and drank it in, then she noticed one more thing. Brenna had written at the edge of the window, love one another. Only Brenna, in her creative spelling, had written love one, W-O-N. Love one another. And I'm done. I'll see you all tomorrow. But, but don't you know that that's what this is about? It's not just about teaching you doctrine. We are nothing if the Holy Spirit does not come in our midst and give us revival. He's not going to bring revival to a people that's not concerned about love winning another. Whether that's a lost person, whether that's a reformed theological person, Calvinist, love has to win one another. Grab the hand of your neighbor, let's pray. God, we know that you don't win anything by bitterness. You don't win anything by impatience. You win nothing by pride. Anyone in here who has been won was only won one way, and that was with love. So God, help us. Help us to, to go and do likewise. We're nothing without revival, God. Our churches are nothing without revival. And Lord, we need to be so much on our face in our heart because of this. So that as we talk about doctrinal and biblical things that are so important, that God, we don't, we don't lose that sense of love. Help us to win others with the love that you have won us with. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.